The following was recorded at the 2014 Reformed Forum Theology Conference, held October 10th through 12th, 2014, at Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. For more information, please visit reformedforum.org. All right, brothers, we're very excited about our next session. This is our final plenary address of our conference, our first and inaugural Reform Forum Theology Conference. We're pleased to welcome back to the podium Dr. Lane G. Tipton. Once again, he teaches biblical and systematic theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, This plenary address, he's titled Redemptive History, Merit, and the Sons of God. No doubt many of you uh, have been following some of the discussions online and all the debates pertaining to this notion of a supposed republication of the covenant of works in the Mosaic economy. Elaine's not going to answer all the questions, no doubt, that you might have. However, he's going to present to us, within the framework of this notion of the sons of God, which he's already developed in his first session, an idea of what it means uh, to have a covenantally meritorious son, one who offers perfect personal and perpetual obedience, that is, Jesus Christ. How does that relate to the nation of Israel? How does that relate to the provisional aspects of the kingdom and the, that were offered to the nation uh, in Canaan, for example? Well, Lane's going to present to you some very compelling and uh, maybe even provocative material, so we're very encouraged to welcome him back to the podium. Of course, after this session, we will have uh, our final breakout session, uh, 4 p.m., Those will be held in the same rooms. You can see the schedule on the far right panel in your programs toward the bottom. Uh, But for those who have signed up, we encourage you to stay here. Uh, Lane will be continuing this conversation, this plenary address, and affording you much time and opportunity to ask questions and to have interaction here in the auditorium. Uh, Jonathan Brack and Jared Oliphant are uh, leading a breakout session on questioning the progress in progressive covenantalism which is a Reformed critique of Kingdom Through Covenant, which is a very influential book uh, in the last several years. Uh, We're scheduled to have Dr. Craig Troxell teaching on practical theology, Lead the Flock Together, Under Shepherding with One Mind. That one will be held in the room off to my left, uh, to your right. And uh, James Fowler, who just gave us a presentation on Logos Bible Software, uh, will be offering a personalized training down in the conference room on the lower level. One final piece of housekeeping I would like to say is that uh, we did have a Reform Media Review episode in which we covered the Logos Reform base package. If you'd like a little more detail on how uh, we use that software and why we think it's valuable, uh, Jared and I uh, spoke with uh, Dr. Oliphant. Was there anyone else on that? Yeah, it was us three, and we spoke about uh, the software and our own personal use cases for that. It was a wonderful time, so you can find that online as well. So please, uh, one more time, let's welcome Dr. Tipton to the platform as he's going to speak to us about the sons of God. This lecture is going to uh, build on the previous material that we looked at in Luke 4 and Luke 23. And I'm not going to be able to say close to everything that needs to be said about this uh, topic, but I am going to try to offer some fundamental programmatic guiding principles that should help us navigate this in what I hope to be a constructive way forward. My aim and my design here 
is constructive and it is an attempt to offer something that I hope uh, parties that might be polarized would be able to consider and move forward along the lines that are suggested here or at least might be stimulated by them. We saw in the last lecture the way that Scripture makes typological connections uh, between Israel as Son of God and Jesus Christ as Son of God. Israel recapitulates the sin and fall of Adam in the wilderness. Christ recapitulates the experience and reverses the outcome of the temptations and falls of both Adam and Israel. And we stressed in that lecture that it is important to remember that Jesus does not merely fulfill Israel's vocation or strictly do what Israel failed to do. Why? Because he is the Messiah. He is the Spirit-baptized, eschatological Son, the Redeemer of Israel. He offers a comprehensive obedience that has active and passive aspects, and it is uniquely and inimitably qualified obedience, right? The obedience of the second and last Adam. This means, then, that built into the comparisons and the analogies that are drawn between Israel and Christ, there must be a fundamental distinction that must be observed at every point and which we must not obscure. And that distinction is between Christ, the mediator, who alone merits eschatological life for his people on the one hand, and those redeemed, those who are granted life in Christ, on the other hand. Christ, the eschatological Son, alone merits eschatological life and beatitude for his people in his humiliation and in his exaltation. So that whatever comparisons and contrasts that we make between Israel as Son of God, the typological Son, and Christ, the Son of God, the eschatological Son, the distinction between the mediator and those for whom he is mediator must be given a controlling focus in our formulation. So the question, preliminarily, is this. How can we relate the typical character of Israel as Son of God to the eschatological reality of Christ as Son of God? And how can we do so without blurring the distinction between Christ as mediator and those for whom he mediates? So how can we both distinguish and relate the obedience of Israel as Son of God on the one hand from the obedience of Jesus as Son of God on the other hand without obscuring the distinction that I've just noted? And after distinguishing between each, how can we make meaningful typological correlations? That's the task that's before us for the next hour. Now, it should go without saying that a significant, all-controlling distinction ought to be observed from the outset. The obedience of Christ as the Son of God contains within itself both active and passive aspects that are capable of being distinguished from all other forms of obedience, given his identity as the mediator, the second and last Adam, 
the eschatological son. That is, Christ offers one comprehensive and categorically unique obedience as the mediator, and that obedience is qualified or delineated along the lines of active and passive aspects. The obedience of Christ as mediator has an active aspect that can be categorically distinguished from all other post-fall expressions of obedience in this way, that his obedience secures eschatological life. Just as the original way to life before the fall was obedience without suffering, wrath, and curse, so Christ offers an active obedience that conforms to the positive precept of God's law as a covenant of works. Christ obeys where Adam failed to obey, and his active obedience, his obeying the positive precept of God's moral law, is the only obedience assigned by God the function of securing eschatological life. In fact, only the obedience of federal heads, either Adam or Christ, is the means to eschatological life for the elect. Eschatological life is tethered concretely to the representative obedience of a federal head, and it cannot be gained by individuals who are not ordained as federal heads. Israel's vocation was not to offer the active obedience of the mediator, the obedience necessary to gain life. That distinctive form of obedience is reserved for one and one only. Christ. Likewise, the passive aspect of Christ's obedience as mediator, his bearing the wrath and curse of God for his people, his bearing the guilt of his people's sin throughout his life, climaxing on the cross, that obedience is categorically unique as well. Neither Adam nor Israel nor anyone else in the history of redemption are assigned this role, a sin-bearing substitute. Christ not only conforms perfectly to the positive precept of God's moral law, but he bears its penal sanction as a representative and substitute for his people. And Israel's vocation as the Son of God did not involve this assignment this purpose, this task. This is clearly an aspect of obedience peculiar to the Messiah, and it must be appreciated. Now, when we situate the obedience of Christ this way, we can say that only this comprehensive obedience of the God-man merits salvation and life for the people of God. The climactic reward for this obedience is eschatological life, is possession of the Spirit, is, as we saw this morning, opening the gates of paradise for the people of God, and the fruition of his obedience culminates when he is raised as life-giving Spirit, possessor and conveyor of resurrection life in the Spirit. Israel, as Son of God, is not given the task of offering this sort of obedience, and Israel is not promised this outcome for obedience. Israel, as the Son of God, is not 
to become the possessor and conveyor of resurrection life in the Spirit because Israel needs that granted from another by the Messiah. To say that Israel should have done what Jesus did is to confuse the identities of the Redeemer and the redeemed. Now secondly, and related to this, we've already touched this, we can say that Israel, as the typical son of God, is redeemed by God. Remember Exodus 4.23? Let my son go that he may worship me. Israel is a blood-bought son of God as a nation. Israel is redeemed by blood out of Egypt, redeemed by the blood of the Paschal Lamb, spared the judgment that befalls the firstborn in Egypt. Israel, as the typological son of God, is redeemed by blood. And there is no other way by which this son can be liberated from sin and bondage. And the blood of the Passover lamb typifies the blood of Christ, typifies the blood of the Redeemer. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, Hebrews 9, 23. Put in global, redemptive, historical perspective, Israel, the typological son, is redeemed by the blood of the eschatological son, as that blood is typified in the Passover. Even though the benefits of that blood are mediated in the modality of a typological blood sacrifice. In addition to this, remember the preface to the Ten Commandments situates Israel as son of God within the context of redemption out of Egypt. I am not only your God, but the Lord your God, who with outstretched arm brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of bondage. And God accepts sacrifice for the sins of the nation, does he not? The Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. The sins of the nation are confessed over the head of a scapegoat and it bears away the sin of Israel, the sin of the whole nation. And the Lord is long-suffering and patient with His typological Son. He does not deal with them according to strict justice, wholly devoid of grace. Were God to do so, sinful Israel could not exist for a second in the holy realm of Canaan, much less for generations. Hence, God relates to Israel as the Redeemer Lord. He is the Redeemer, and Israel, as a nation, is redeemed, bought by blood. Therefore, whatever obedience Israel as a typical son is to offer to God, That obedience must be construed as the obedience of the redeemed and categorically distinguished from the obedience of the Redeemer. And it must be done so at every point. 
And if the Son of God, Israel, is redeemed, such redemption can only be understood in terms of union with the Redeemer, union with the Messiah. Israel, as Son of God, redeemed by blood and brought out of Egypt, is united to the promised Messiah, typified in the sacrificial offering. Or to put the matter differently, every act of God in the Old or New Testaments that brings redemption to His people has union with the Messiah at its core. And Israel, as Son of God, is no exception to that rule. God redeemed Israel, the typical son, from bondage and sin, bondage in Egypt to worship and rest in the holy paradise land of Canaan, a realm that is a shadowy replica of the glory of heaven. So the obedience of Israel as son of God is the obedience of one redeemed in union with the promised Messiah. And thus, the obedience of this son is set over against, categorically distinguished from the obedience of the Redeemer. How then do you classify the obedience of one redeemed? Whether that redemption applies to a nation as a whole or to the individuals who comprise that nation? Well, let me try to tether some of this to the existing Reformed tradition, particularly the Westminster Standards, and try to clarify this. That's our aim. Put in terms of the Westminster Confession of Faith and its discussion of good works from chapter 16, the character of the typological son's obedience is brought into proper focus. Let me use language borrowed from Westminster Confession 16, uh, sections 2 and 5 and 6. Israel, the typical son's obedience, is wrought by the Spirit of Christ, 16.2. And while remaining at every point imperfect, is accepted on the basis of union with the promised Messiah. You see? Israel, the typical son, this obedience is wrought by the Spirit of Christ and while remaining imperfect at every point is accepted on the basis of union with the promised Messiah. 16.6 summarizes it this way. The persons of believers are accepted through Christ and their good works are also accepted in Him. For sinners, for creatures, image bearers after the fall, there is no other way for good works to be acceptable in the sight of God apart from spirit-forged faith union with the Messiah. Now it's critical in these ways then to make an initial distinction between the obedience of Christ and the obedience of Israel, the eschatological and typical son. A failure to maintain this distinction will blur the difference between the Redeemer and the redeemed, and all of our formulations, it seems to me, must maintain these theological priorities at all costs. These have to be controlling, fundamental, presuppositional structures that govern our thinking. But at this point, I want you to reflect on something that is of interest to us. And I want to read to you a portion from Westminster Confession 
Listen to this. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him. We just saw that. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept, listen, and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Growing out of these distinctions that we've noted, notice this. Note that that while there's a distinction between the perfect meritorious obedience of Christ and the spirit-wrought imperfect obedience of believers, growing out of that distinction, there is a correlation. Both receive reward in some sense. Christ's obedience, in the strict sense of the term, merits eschatological reward for the elect. That obedience is aimed toward glory from the outset. It's eschatologically calibrated at its core. The spirit-wrought obedience of believers is rewarded, but not because it is meritorious. It is rewarded accepted and rewarded only in light of union with Christ and for the sake of Christ in spite of manifold weakness and imperfection. So to put it simply, after the fall, there are two classes of reward. There is reward for the perfect and meritorious obedience offered only by the Redeemer And there is reward for imperfect, spirit-wrought obedience accepted only for the sake of and in union with the Redeemer. With the former as the premised foundation and controlling reality of the latter. In both instances, we can speak of a reward. But the reward of the mediator is meritorious. The reward for those in him is gracious, is gifted by spirit-wrought faith and grace. This construction supplies the proper frame of reference for both distinguishing and correlating the obedience of the typological and eschatological sons of God. The obedience of Christ is the sole meritorious ground for the eschatological redemption of his people. The obedience of Israel is imperfect at every point and accepted only for the sake of Christ in spirit-forged union with the promised Messiah. Yet Israel's obedience as redeemed son is rewarded even though it is not meritorious, even though it doesn't merit the favor of God, even though it is imperfect and weak at every point. Israel's obedience, like the obedience of all who are redeemed, is rewarded for the sake of the Messiah, even though it falls short at every point in terms of the proper goal, motive, and standard. But then the question that gets to the distinctive character of Israel's obedience is this, the distinctive point. Israel's reward as typological son 
is tethered to maintaining the typological inheritance of Canaan or forfeiting it by disobedience. And it's at this point that I want to introduce that idea and I'm going to move toward it. Israel's obedience is going to be tethered to maintaining the typical land blessings in Canaan, and those land blessings will be forfeited through disobedience. But it's in this context, that's that's where I'm going to go, it's in this context that I want us to note what is emerging for us. And I want to probe this a bit further. Note that there is a proper analogy that exists between faithful obedience that is common to believers on one side and a uniquely ordained typological significance of obedience that anticipates something of the Messiah on the other hand. And here is where we're going to begin to read a a few portions from the corpus of Meredith Klein. I want us to examine how this can happen. How can spirit-wrought obedience flowing from union with Christ, how can that obedience supply a category that in certain ways typifies the obedience of Christ? Or perhaps underscore the need for it. Let me give you a couple of things to think about. In his final published book entitled God, Heaven, and Armageddon. M.G. Klein asserts a programmatic principle that underlies his notion of so-called merit in the Old Testament typology. And he uses Abraham as a test case. Listen to this. He says, Genesis 22 records another episode with an outstanding act of obedience on Abraham's part which is said to be the basis for the Lord bestowing on him the blessings of the covenant. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you because you have obeyed my voice. And remember, that blessing brings into view the blessing of the Gentiles and the nations. Klein goes on. This is on page 102 and 103 of God, Heaven, and Harm Again. He goes on to say this. From the perspective of Abraham's personal experience of justification by faith, this act of obedience validated his faith. But from the redemptive historical, eschatological perspective, Abraham's obedience had typological import. The Lord constituted it a prophetic sign of the obedience of Christ which merits the heavenly kingdom for his people. End of quote. Klein situates Abraham's obedience squarely within the basic structure of the Ordo Salutis. His obedience is wrought by the Spirit through faith. It is the obedience of of faith. Yet at the same time, Klein argues that his obedience has a prophetic typical significance that prefigures the meritorious obedience of Christ. This is Klein. 
Put differently, Abraham's obedience, from one perspective, is the common spirit-wrought obedience that is characteristic of every believer. Yet it is also assigned a unique typological function that anticipates the eschatological meritorious obedience of the Messiah. Put a different way, ordinary spirit-wrought faith is assigned a prophetically typical function that itself anticipates the once-for-all obedience of Christ. Now let me develop some of this material more fully than Klein does with the concerns previously developed in view. And I'm not saying that this necessarily represents Klein's own views as much as it represents my development of material from his own corpus in a way that I think is consistent with the best of what Klein is getting at, the most nuanced and careful presentation of what Klein is saying. Let me underscore and exegete this a bit. Let us underscore, from this quote from Klein, the fundamental differences between the obedience of Abraham and the obedience of Christ. First, Abraham's obedience is a prophetic sign of the obedience of Christ. And it is only the latter, Christ's obedience, that merits eschatological redemption for his people. As a sign, the obedience of Abraham must be categorically distinguished from what it signifies, namely, the obedience of Christ. The sign, Abraham's obedience, and the thing signified, Christ's obedience, cannot be conflated or confused. Abraham's obedience at every point remains only the obedience of one redeemed under the covenant of grace in union with the coming Messiah. Christ's obedience at every point remains the obedience of the Redeemer in terms of whose work Abraham is saved, is justified. In other words, Klein's language about the prophetic and typical character of Abraham's obedience underscores the irreversible distinction between Abraham the redeemed and Christ the redeemer. Another feature pertaining to the distinction between Abraham's obedience as the one redeemed and the obedience of Christ the Redeemer, is this, that Abraham's obedience is active only and imperfectly active at that. What do I mean by that? Abraham's obedience involves conforming to the positive precepts of God's moral law. Genesis 17.1, Abraham walked before me and be what? Blameless. But Abraham, in his obedience, does not offer himself as a sacrifice to bear away sin. The ram caught in the thicket supplies the sacrificial offering in the place of Isaac. In this way, Abraham prefigures the active obedience of the Aaronic high priest. And the ram anticipates the sacrificial offering of the animal blood under the Mosaic economy. 
But neither Abraham nor Aaron offer that passive aspect of obedience that propitiates wrath and expiates sin. And very briefly, as an aside, in Romans, in Hebrews 9.25, this is why you can see the author of Hebrews demands that we distinguish between active and passive aspects of obedience, yet unite them together in the person of Christ. Why? Because unlike the high priest, he offered himself once for all. Active and passive aspects converge in the perfection of his obedience. But Abraham... He is an imperfect type who offers imperfect active obedience only. Fundamental distinction. Still another feature that distinguishes Abraham's obedience from the meritorious obedience of Christ and stamps it with a typical and prophetic character is that Abraham's obedience is spirit-wrought and mixed with weakness and imperfection at every point. While spirit-wrought, Abraham's faith, working in love, is sincere, yet lacks the perfection God requires in goal, motive, and standard. No sooner after God tells Abraham to walk before him and be blameless, he is coming in judgment upon him because of the circumcision problem. So, Abraham's active obedience is an imperfect type of the meritorious obedience of Christ because it is imperfect, has no propitiatory or expiatory significance. He doesn't bear away anything for anyone. Now, with these qualifications in place and keeping them in view, we can move on and appreciate the way Abraham's obedience operates positively as a prophetic sign and type of Christ's obedience. Positively, yet what? Imperfectly. The obedience of Abraham is very unique in the Old Testament in that it is assigned a special role. His obedience is the premised reality in light of which his immediate descendants and all the nations on earth will be blessed. Think about it. Genesis 22, 6, 18. In Abraham's case, the obedience of the one is the divinely ordained act that contemplates the blessing of the many. Right? Thus, functioning to typify the obedience of the Messiah. In Acts, uh, Genesis 26, uh, 22, 16 through 18, here's what you read. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you, singular, have obeyed my voice. You see, the blessing of Abraham's offspring is tethered to his obeying the voice of the Lord. Abraham's spirit-wrought, active obedience is a sign of function that brings within its purview the salvation of the nations. 
And the typical and prophetic character of this obedience is clear, I hope, that the imperfectly active obedience of the one results in blessings for the many. If you hear behind this or in front of it, if you hear Isaiah 53, one is pierced for transgressions in one suffering, the many will be blessed. I think you are right. If you hear Romans 5, 18 through 19, one man's obedience, the many will be justified. I think you are right. Abraham's obedience is an imperfect prophetic type of the perfect, comprehensive, and meritorious obedience of Christ, the one typified. Surely, Genesis 22 adumbrates Isaiah 53 and Romans 5. Well, what else can we say? Let us try to clarify further what Klein is getting at when he then speaks of Abraham's obedience as meritorious. What could he mean? Well, if you pay attention to the nuance and care by which he articulates this this expression, we could say something like this. Abraham's obedience, now now let me put it in the language of the confession. Let me retranslate it in confessional language. Abraham's obedience is wrought by the Spirit of Christ, Confession 16.2. And it is imperfect at every point, 16.5. But it is accepted on the basis of faith union with the promised Messiah, Westminster Confession 16.6. Yet at the same time, from the redemptive historical perspective, Abraham's obedience foresignifies Christ's obedience, Westminster Confession 7.5. And is from that perspective a type that signifies the coming Messiah, Westminster Confession 8.6. Abraham's ordinary obedience, it's obedience just like ours, wrought by the grace of God in union with Christ by faith. Abraham's ordinary obedience is assigned a typical symbolic function that adumbrates the obedience of the Messiah. Both the common, ordinary, ordo salutis concern and the unique, unrepeatable, historia salutis concern, both of those converge in Abraham. It's astounding. Now, what I want to urge at this point is that Klein's formulation regarding Abraham provides a useful paradigm that ought to inform the way we understand how God deals with his typological son, Israel. God, Heaven, and Armageddon was Klein's last published work. Book book form. But let me now look at one of his earliest published works, his commentary on the book of Deuteronomy from the Wycliffe Bible Commentary from 1962. And I want to highlight some quotations. And now, here's where the synthetic functions all come together. This is where I'm going to put a lot together. So here it goes, the last ten pages or so. Klein situ- I'm going to s- summarize this. Klein situates the, I- the obedience of Israel as typological son 
in a way that has stimulating parallels with his discussion of Abraham, yet with some nuanced distinctions in place. Commenting on the Torah, Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 3, Klein says this, The commandments about to be given were the divinely dictated law for the theocratic kingdom, and it was soon to be erected in the new paradise land of milk and honey. That it may be well with thee, Israel's continued enjoyment of a habitation in God's land, like Adam's continued enjoyment of the original paradise, depended on continued fidelity to the Lord. So Klein is saying that continuing in the land of Canaan depends on fidelity to the Lord. Certain important distinctions are necessary in making such a comparison, Klein says. Flawless obedience was the condition of Adam's continuance in the garden, but Israel's tenure in Canaan was contingent on the maintenance of a measure of religious loyalty which needed not be comprehensive of all Israel nor perfect even in those who were true Israel. There was a freedom in God's exercise or restraint of judgment, a freedom originating in the underlying principle of sovereign grace in His rule over Israel. Nevertheless, God did so dispense His judgment that the interests of the typical symbolic message of Israel's history was preserved. Let me comment. Klein distinguishes here between the flawless obedience of Adam and the imperfect obedience of Israel as a nation. And Klein notes, and please hear this, that both obey with reference to a holy realm. Adam's obedience is to escalate beyond the holy realm of Eden and culminate in glory and Sabbath rest. Israel's obedience is tethered concretely to maintaining the typical symbolic holy realm that has been intruded in earthly form for the typical son to maintain by a measure of fidelity. But Klein asserts that the freedom of God in restraining judgment on the imperfection of Israel's religious loyalty must be traced to a principle of grace. It is grace, not merit, that explains why God does not instantly judge Israel for imperfect obedience. And it is grace that accounts for the fact He rewards imperfect obedience. And when God did dispense judgment, it was in the interest of Israel's typical symbolic identity as the Son of God in the holy realm of Canaan. The judgment, in other words, has a divinely ordained, typical, symbolic function tethered to Israel as typical son in a typical holy realm. It's an instance of divine pedagogy. But the underlying modus operandi is the sovereign, free grace of God. Second place in Klein's commentary. It's the warning of the broken tablets in Deuteronomy 9, 1 through 10, 11. He says this, 
He says, For Israel to assume that Canaan was a reward for their righteousness, Deuteronomy 9.4, would be an even greater contradiction of the realities of the covenant relationship than their boasting that the possession and prosperity of the land was achieved by their might. The conceit of self-righteousness is an attempt of the sinner lusting after autonomy to free himself from God at that very point where his need of God is most desperate. The need for forgiveness and cleansing. Moses, therefore, passionately presented the truth that the promises and blessings of the covenant relation were Israel's by virtue of mercy, not merit. The initial promise and blessing of the covenant relation is of grace. What about its continuation? Klein says this, commenting on that famous text in Deuteronomy 28. He says this, Although Israel's inheritance and continued enjoyment of the promises was not a matter of legal merit, there was a connection between the nation's corporate piety and prosperity. For the Old Testament theocratic kingdom prefigured the consummate kingdom of God in which righteousness and glory are to be united. Accordingly, to keep the message of the typical prophetic picture clear, God allowed the Israelites to enjoy the blessings of the typical kingdom only as they, and especially their official representatives, exhibited an appropriate measure of the righteousness of the kingdom. But listen, since any righteousness that Israel possessed was a gift of grace from the God of her salvation, the principle which informs Deuteronomy 28 has no affinities with a religion of work salvation. Both inauguration and continuation of the theocracy, both entrance and continuation into the typical realm of land blessing are a matter of sovereignly wrought, demerited grace. And the obedience of Israel as the Son of God exhibits the appropriate measure of the righteousness of the typical kingdom, a righteousness that has no affinities with the religion of work salvation. It is this righteousness that prefigures the eschatological righteousness of the coming Son and His coming kingdom where righteousness and glory are wed together in Him in his obedience and exaltation. God, in the typico-symbolic holy realm of an intruded heaven on earth, looks upon the graciously wrought righteousness of the typical son, and he rewards that righteousness graciously accepted with continued life in the land, and he will curse by removing from the land if that righteousness, appropriate righteousness, is not given. But here is the key. The righteousness of the typological Son of God in the typico-symbolic holy realm of an intruded heaven on earth, that righteousness derives from spirit-wrought grace, not merit. Spirit-wrought grace, not merit. 
Now, these texts apply to Israel as the typological son, all that we developed regarding the baseline distinction between the redeemer and the redeemed, and opens up typological correlations among protological, typological, and eschatological sons of God. And the point seems clear. Let me develop it in our final few minutes here. Neither Abraham nor Israel can merit the blessings of God, whether those blessings are eschatological life or typical blessings in the land of Canaan. To say that such could be the case would violate the distinction between the obedience of the Redeemer and the obedience of the redeemed. However, in light of a principle of sovereign grace and in light of union with the promised Messiah, that Lord allows there to be in both Abraham and Israel a non-meritorious, spirit-wrought obedience that has a unique typical function. In both the case of Abraham and Israel, there is a non-meritorious, spirit-wrought obedience that has a unique typical function. In the case of Abraham we see a typical depiction of the way that the Messiah's obedience will secure a holy people. In the case of Israel, typical symbolic depiction of the way that the Messiah's obedience will secure a holy realm. Do you see the distinction? Abraham's obedience is geared toward people, seed. Israel's obedience as the son is geared toward realm, land. And when you think about Genesis 12, 7, to your offspring, I will give this realm, you get a full-orbed presentation of the typical character of the kingdom of God. In Abraham's obedience, then, we see what turns out to be a positive type that adumbrates the obedience of the Messiah. In Israel's disobedience, we see a negative type that adumbrates the need for the Messiah. Built into the theocracy, at the national level, there is this principle. And it extends beyond Abraham. This is what's distinctive. A principle that involves either maintaining in faithful obedience or losing in faithless disobedience the typological inheritance of Canaan. Faithful obedience maintains the typical holy realm. Faithless disobedience forfeits that holy realm and results in exile. It is Israel's corporate unbelief and disobedience that forfeits the typical holy realm of Canaan. Because the character of Israel's obedience is tethered inseparably to land maintenance or land loss. That is where there is a divinely ordained correlation between Adam as son of God and Israel as son of God. The obedience is tethered to either gaining eschatological inheritance with Adam or maintaining the typological inheritance with Israel. Israel as typological son does not appropriate the typical indicative of the gospel set forth in promises, types, and sacrifices and does not walk in the faith of Abraham. Listen, the offspring of Abraham does not walk as the offspring of Abraham. 
Instead, Israel walks in unbelief. And when Israel does so, Israel recapitulates the sin of the protological son, Adam. Insofar as the obedience of Israel is tethered to retaining the typical paradise land, and Israel's disobedience is tethered to the exile from the typical paradise land, there is a divinely established structure in place that allows for the replication of the sin, fall, and exile of Adam adjusted to Israel's redemptive relationship to the Lord under the covenant of grace in the Mosaic administration. And it is here, in Israel's spurning of the typical indicative, persisting in unbelief and disobedience, and losing the typical inheritance of Canaan, that the correlation between Adam, the protological son, and Israel, the typological son, becomes manifest. So how does this discussion relate to the so-called republication of the covenant of works, which in which enshrines a principle of merit for the retention of land promises for Israel. Well, we can address this with the nuance that we have developed or tried to develop in this essay, in this lecture. While there is not a republication of the covenant of works at the national level as the meritorious way to continued life in Canaan, there is a typological reenactment or recapitulation of the sin, fall, and exile of Adam set forth in bold print in large strokes for redemptive history. Let me try it this way. We can affirm the latter, the recapitulation of Adam's sin and fall in exile, without recourse to the former, the republication of a merit principle for maintaining the land of Canaan. And it is this distinction that must be appreciated. There's a distinction between the recapitulation of the sin, fall, and exile of Adam on the one side and the republication of a merit principle for maintaining the land of Canaan on the other side. Let me use Klein's language and give you a single summary paragraph from what we've looked at in his work. Corporate Israel, the typical son, is to display a typical prophetic picture and enjoy the blessings of the typical kingdom as a gift of grace from the God of salvation so that Deuteronomy 28 has no affinities with the religion of work salvation at any level. Zero. The eschatological level, typological level, or any other level that you want to imagine. It's not there. So to put the matter from the perspective of Westminster Confession 16.6, Israel would be, and this is how you advance this a, a bit more, Israel would be rewarded land blessings for imperfect obedience, accepted for the sake of the Messiah and in light of union with him, and would continue to enjoy the blessings of communion with the Lord in the land of Canaan. Or would forfeit land blessings for spurning this typical indicative that is rooted in the sovereign grace of God and would lose communion with God and the holy realm where that communion is achieved. Please remember this, and I'll talk about it in the breakout session, the fact that it takes so many generations for God to expel Israel 
is clear proof that strict justice without any grace cannot be present as God's modus operandi for the theocracy at the national level. It can't. It's not possible. Were that the case, strict justice, no merit at the national level, here's how long Israel would last. That's it. Just like that. It's over. The problem with Israel, in other words, is not that it violated a republished covenant of works that was given to Adam. Nor was it that Israel violated a covenantal arrangement totally devoid of grace at the national level. The problem lies in the fact that Israel reenacts the sin and fall and exile of Adam by apostasy from the covenant of grace. By spurning the typological indicative of the gospel and experiencing exile from the typological paradise land. Hence, and here's my final way of trying to put it, the recapitulation of Adam's sin is set within a distinctively redemptive context. Israel, as a redeemed son of God, fails to enjoy the graciously gifted blessings of the typical kingdom and loses the outward realm of holiness and the communion with God that lie at the heart of the Mosaic covenant of grace. That's where the correlation ought to stay. Now one final thought, and one that I won't develop extensively in this lecture, but I would like to. Israel's failure, from one vantage point, rests in the fact that Israel is not Christ. Israel is not the eschatological son whose obedience results in eschatological advancement an endowment with the Spirit, and entrance into the paradise land above. The outcome of the obedience of the eschatological Son is that He becomes life-giving Spirit, and that life has yet to be given. And Israel, as typical Son, reenacts the sin and fall and exile of Uh, the typical son, reenacts the sin of Adam, the exile of Adam, underscoring the absolute necessity for the appearance of the eschatological son and the Messiah. Built into the pedagogical significance of the theocracy of Israel is a sin and fall and exile pattern that's mimicking Adam and underscoring the need for the one who would enter into the eschatological fullness of exile, wrath and curse, and then rise and triumph over it into the promised land. See? It's the gospel. That's the gospel. And this brings us back to our discussion from Luke 4. Israel recapitulates the sin and fall of Adam preparing the way for the one who would open the gates of paradise for his people by humiliation and exaltation, preparing the way for the one who would merit eschatological blessing for his people, Jesus Christ, the eschatological, spirit-baptized, messianic Son of God. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Dr. Tipton. Wonderful content there. A lot to think about. If I were to invoke uh, the voice of a good Meredith G. Klein, I would say, um, sheds new light on the uh, supposed uh, Murray Klein debate. Hmm? <laughs> was that Yoda? I don't know. It was both. He, he was Yoda. Adam, Adam uh, York could do it much better. Uh, we have a lot uh, in store. I do want to thank our speakers so much. Uh, Dr. Oliphant, thank you so much. Dr. Tipton for speaking. We do have a breakout session scheduled here from 4 to 5 p.m. Some information on that. Uh, redemptive history, merit, and the sons of God. Lane will uh, follow up on his uh, plenary address here in the auditorium. Uh, questioning the progress in progressive covenantalism, a reformed critique of kingdom through covenant. Jonathan Brack and Jared Oliphant will develop much of the material in their uh, Westminster Theological Seminary uh, review article. They will be down in the fellowship hall. Uh, Craig Troxell will teach us on how to lead the flock together under shepherding with one mind in the auditorium room right here off to the side. And also uh, James Fowler will be offering Logos Bible training software in the conference room in the lower level. Before I dismiss you for that, I do want to give some idea of what's going on uh, tonight and tomorrow, uh, tomorrow morning at 9.30 a.m., if you're able to stay over, we would love to have you worship with us here. Our morning service uh, begins at 9.30, and we'll go roughly till 10.30. Uh, we'll have a coffee time after that, and then a Sunday school where uh, Dr. Tipton will be teaching on Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. That begins at 11 o'clock. Following the Sunday school hour, we will have a fellowship meal, which is provided by the congregation here, Hope OPC. Uh, so they're uh, very thankful for, for um, all of you to come, and we are very thankful uh, to have the church um, to be able to host this, uh, this conference. And they've been, uh, you know, the session has been very supportive, and we've had so many people helping. I want to thank Hank and Edith Blum, Alice Winter, uh, Carol DeBoer, Mike and Laura Benson, Ryan Noah, and I want to also thank my wife very much. She's my crown and my joy. She put much of this together and organized so many of the details. So I want to thank my wife, Erica. And of course, I want to thank all of you, our supporters. Thank you. Thank you. Well deserved. And I want to thank all of you, our supporters, who made this happen. If we didn't have people listening, and people that were wanting to come, and people that were hungry uh, for Reformed teaching, then this would not be possible. So I want to thank you as well. And uh, we're just delighted and absolutely um, just... Uh, humbled by the fact that you would want to come and participate. So now uh, I'll dismiss you. We'll have our breakout sessions at 4. There are sandwiches uh, which will be available uh, downstairs here at 5 o'clock, leftover sandwiches that you could take with you if you'd like to for dinner. And finally, the tables will close after this last breakout session today, so they will not be available tomorrow. Otherwise, we might have to bring a whip and overturn the tables if we're going to start selling stuff here in the temple. This is not the temple, but you see what I mean. So on to your breakout sessions. Thank you.